Okay, so this is our Simon Don reading group. We're continuing our reading of imagination and invention, uh, picking up from page 71 of the translation. Um, so we're on part two of the book. So this, uh, so the, the, the title of part two is The Cognitive Content of Images. So this is uh, in his big cycle of the image. Um, this is the second phase of the image. So it's um, the image in the encounter with the object or uh, the sort of present phase of the image. So part one was the uh, the image before the encounter with the object. Um, and we looked at the different levels at which that can occur. Uh, and so part two is the um, the image in the presence or in, in uh, simultaneity with the object. Um, so we're starting, uh, the first part is about this biological level of uh, the encounter with the object. So we saw last time um, the, the idea that um, this biological level has to is connected with um, or the the sort of distinction between the biological and the psychical level has to do with the organization of a territory for whatever organism is you know encountering these images so um, the the sort of example that he or one of the examples that he gives is um, a jaguar in its sort of everyday life in its own territory is capable of um, taking uh, various detours to try to um, reach its prey or to achieve a certain goal. Um, whereas in a laboratory setting, this jaguar is sort of uh, passive in relation to some sort of uh, obstacle that it, it finds. So it, it, in the lab, it's not really capable of taking a detour to reach an objective. And uh, the sort of the moral that Simono draws from this um, anecdote is that um, the the ability to treat uh, an entity as an object with various properties that you can use in different ways is something that is uh, connected to the organization of a territory. So it's only on uh, a territory, so a, a sort of domain with a structure, um, and uh, in particular, a, a sort of center of the domain, so a, a home base or something like that. It's only in a territory with that kind of structure that an organism is capable of treating entities as objects that can be used in different ways. Um, and then outside of the territory, the organism will respond to entities um, just in terms of these sort of uh, basic biological categories like um, predator or prey or a potential mate or whatever, uh, a, a very limited set of categories that um, are sort of immediately tied to some sort of um, behavioral response. Uh, and then um, Simon Don goes through, um, so he looks at uh, some of the um, structures of behavior that can be connected to these images, and he's drawing on sort of classical ethology, so um, Lorenz and Tinbergen. Um, he, he looks at the way that um, behavior of certain animals is structured into a sequence of image and response uh, um, phases, I guess. So he talks about this uh, particular kind of wasp that hunts uh, bees. Um, and so the, the sort of first phase of the hunting um, sequence is just seeing a, a sort of small flying object uh, and then approaching it. Um, and so nine times out of 10, the small flying object will not be a bee, um, but it's a sort of low commitment. The uh, 
the approach action doesn't really require a big investment of energy. Um, and uh, but then the the sort of one time out of ten, or the the few times that it actually is a bee, then the next phase of the hunting sequence will begin. Um, he doesn't go into the details of what exactly that is, but presumably it involves you know identifying something as a bee and then um, attacking it and so on. Um, so uh, many animals have uh, behavioral sequences that are sort of set up in this way, where there's a, a sort of first general phase with a low sort of commitment of energy. Uh, and then as uh, the sequence proceeds, there's more and more commitment of energy or other resources. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, <laughs> there are these sequences of images um, uh, that structure behavior. Uh, and then we also looked at, in the case of humans, uh, so Simon Dome says there's, um, um, yeah, this, uh, a sort of a lack of research into the way that these images are uh, manifest themselves in humans as opposed to other animals. But he, he gives some examples of um, like um, sort of the use of some of these images in, in the use of um, the film industry. For example, he, he describes Shirley Temple, um, the film star from the 1930s, I believe, as, uh, um, uh, as sort of the... Uh, paradigm of uh, the child. Um, so we have this sort of paradigm image of what a child should look like uh, in terms of, you know, facial features and so on. And uh, Shirley Temple sort of uh, was used by Hollywood uh, directors as sort of the uh, instance of this image. Um, and then he mentions uh, an interesting point that we discussed a bit last time that some of these images can be condensed into each other. So uh, in the case of Shirley Temple, she has this, she sort of incarnates this image of the child, but she also is, um, uh, the way that she's depicted in different films, uh, sort of um, uses the the image of a an adult woman as a potential sexual partner um, as well, because she um, is sort of uh, depicted as um, uh, opposite an adult man um, and her, you know, dancing and so on. Um, so the image of the child and the image of the woman are sort of condensed into, um, one person or one person can incarnate both images, even if those images are sort of contradictory to each other. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, this condensation is, um, sort of, um, uh, <laughs> an important point because, uh, it's precisely when these images can be condensed into each other that we have something like, um, um, uh, a choice in in the organism, so the organism can choose to um, respond to one image or to another image that are condensed into the one object. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, an important point that Simon doesn't really emphasize, but I think uh, is worth uh, yeah is worth emphasizing. Um, okay, so I think that's about what we saw last time. Uh, so let's pick up on page 71, if um, someone else would like to read from there. I can read. Subsection 4, the role of the intraperceptual image in choice, victimology and depth psychology. We might summarize by saying that the image acts as a trigger and an information selector with respect to primary perceptions of a progressive type, those comprising successive dichotomies. It is not a trigger for an activity of consummation or execution. This would explain the broad compatibility of images that do not entail a logic of the excluded middle. These are 
principles of a logic of classes as a system of compossibility. Besides this image of compossibilities in a regime of progressive perception, this system needs to make room for specific configurations endowed with a determined meaning, capable of directly triggering an activity of consummation or execution, such as the sight of a snake by a bird. This, this function of directly triggering an execution response is bracketed. The more behaviors based on learning replace autonomous, instinctual behaviors. Nonetheless, the coexistence within one living being of the two uses of the interperceptual image as potential class or as trigger may be the occasion of changes in the regime of correlation between perception and activity, which bring to a reception of information in the progressive regime a direct and abrupt passage to an execution activity. Such a reaction has formally the characters of an instinctual reaction, the direct and immediate response to a configurative stimulus. But it is not a true instinctual reaction since it began as a perception in the progressive regime and was diverted toward a spontaneous reaction, as if the image of compossibilities had been mistaken for a specific trigger. Certain actions of delinquence uh, seem to lend themselves to an interpretation according to the schema of a sudden passage to an execution activity, in particular in cases where premeditation is low. By analogy with the studies of the processes of expression, we might say that they are behavioral anacolitha, hence to see one as first perception in the progressive regime means to direct oneself toward a progressive identification leading to the recognition of the person, or at least a social or collective type of differentiation. A young middle-class woman, an elegant woman, an employee, possible attitudes, greeting, indifference, appear only as a conclusion to progressive perception. Conversely, the mobilization of a sequence of instinctual conduct, such as seduction, based simply on the initial perception of class, marks a sudden leap in regime of perception and does not conform to collective norms. Such a leap is not merely untoward, but criminal if it jumps over the stages of the instinctual sequences themselves, reversible at first, and leads directly to a consummation activity, attempted rape. Disputes and fistfights belong to the same type and signal a bifurcation of the progressive sequences of behavior towards instinctual reactions. So this, he seems to be talking about, or referring back to these images that, these two, I guess, classes of images, one of which uh, comprises various compossibilities and is progressively determined um, which uh, the image of the bee in the wasp seems to be one of these, and the other is this type of image that um, that triggers an immediate instinctual response. But here the difference seems to be that the these images of progressive determination are in some cases susceptible of uh, sort of immediately jumping over into the other class and triggering... Uh, an instinctual response instead. Yeah, I think that sounds right. Um, I think the the difference between these two uses of the image uh, has to do with um, um, sort of the degree of determination uh, of the image in in relation to behavior. Uh, so in the sort of progressive, uh, the, the class use of the image, the, uh, the image is used to sort of recognize something as belonging to a certain category um, and, and so like 
like we talked about earlier, you know, that you can recognize a, an object as being a, a predator or prey or a potential mate or whatever. Um, uh, and then um, once that first recognition is performed, uh, there is uh, generally a, a subsequent um, uh, differentiation of that image into a subcategory. So if you recognize something as a, a prey animal, um, then then you will subcategorize it in terms of what type of prey it is, and then uh, there will be a particular uh, type of capture that will be appropriate to that kind of prey. Um, so, I don't know, uh, like, the way that um, you would go about catching a bird would be different from the way that you would go about catching a squirrel, or, I don't know, I'm, I'm just thinking of examples here, but um, the, the actual um, mechanism of capture of that prey animal would be different depending on what kind of animal it is. Um, and, uh, and so he mentions this instance of um, seeing a woman in the streets. Um, so you might recognize um, as a sort of first step, this is a woman. And then the next step would be, you know, the, based on, you know, the way she's dressed or, um, or other sort of circumstances, you would say this is a, a, a middle-class woman or um, a, lower class woman or whatever um, sort of uh, social categories you would uh, find to assign to, to this woman. And then you might um, go on from there to recognize, oh, this is actually someone that I met at work last week. This is, you know, so-and-so. And then you would greet them or whatever. Um, so the, the behavioral consequence only comes at the end of the process of um, uh, sort of classifying this this. Uh, entity that you encounter under progressively more determined categories. Um, but then the other use of the image or the other um, way that the image can be related to behavior is sort of skipping over that progressive determination and um, just sort of immediately uh, going from the first recognition uh, to uh, a potential behavior. So in this case where um, the, the behavior that um, Simon Dole mentions is uh, attempted rape. So this is, you know, identifying um, uh, this woman as uh, a potential mate um, and using this very um, general category and not uh, um, sort of um, um, differentiating, uh, you know, whether this is an appropriate response or not based on who the person is, but just uh, a very general category and sort of skipping over that differentiation directly to a behavioral outcome. Um, so yeah, I think that's the idea of the, the difference between these two um, sort of relationships between the image and um, behavior is, you know, whether there's a sort of progressive differentiation and then a behavioral outcome after that differentiation, or there's a, a very general um, category, which is then sort of directly used to um, to um, uh, elicit a certain behavior. I looked up anacolathon, and I, I guess it's a literary device. Um, or there's like a sunbreak. And one of the examples on Wikipedia, at least, is from Paradise Lost, um, where Satan addresses, I think, Beelzebub. He says, if thou beest he, but oh, how fallen, how changed. So it goes from the greeting to this exclamation that doesn't really follow. Right, yeah, and I think the the idea here, yeah, so the the Anacolduthon is um, starting with a sequence that would be um, um, 
like the uh, what would start as uh, this recognition sequence of you know this is a woman, this is a middle class woman, this is the woman that I met last week or whatever. Um, uh, so starting starting a, a similar sequence, uh, but then sort of skipping uh, immediately over those uh, intermediate stages and going to the behavioral consequence. Um, as opposed to sort of following the line of progression of that determination. Uh, so that's that's what um, Simonon is sort of comparing this uh, transition to is, is yeah, it's a sort of um, as if you start a sentence and then interrupt yourself midway uh, and start saying something different. Okay, uh, so let's go on to the next page. If someone else could read um, up to the section break of section B, I'll get a volunteer. No volunteers. Okay, I can read um, this one, um, uh, and then hopefully someone else can read the next one. Uh, okay. Yet this general schema of behavioral anacoluthon remains too summary. The bifurcation towards sudden activities of execution is likely not entirely random. It cannot be accounted for solely by invoking the impulsiveness of the subject or his lack of emotional control. We must also take into account the presence of configurative stimuli that trigger an operative short circuit and induce, at least partially, the subject's behavior. In other words, victims are, in some cases, the bearers of perceptual patterns that stimulate various categories of instinctual reactions, as if there was in the victim a certain power of appeal of criminal gestures. According to Mendelssohn from Jerusalem, it is the structure of the aggressor victim that explains criminal acts rather than the delinquent alone. This author recommends preventive and healing measures to victims because in some cases victims are endowed with a, quote, victim potential, unquote, that stimulated possible aggressors. Indeed, there is a concentration of similar crimes against certain persons, for instance, attempted rapes, leading to the idea that victims emit a certain information that directs criminal acts. Nevertheless, more research and a rigorous methodology are required to validate the basic hypothesis of victimology. Sandy, in a similar area of equally conjectural research that deserves nonetheless to be cited, thinks that perception permits choices corresponding to very selective impulses, pulsion, in the subject which predispose him to, to certain categories of acts, for instance, a tendency towards strangling. The theoretical interpretation of Sandi rests on the distinction of dominant and recessive characters. It leads in practice to using tests to choose photographs of various categories of criminals. The non-indifference to this or that category of photographs would selectively indicate the existence in the subject of an impulse that selectively directs them towards a definite category of acts, while preserving the freedom of the various socially accepted sublimations. Sandi's theory is contested, but it is interesting formally as presenting an audacious hypothesis attributing the determinism of deep personal choices to complex perceptions that detect tendencies in other subjects that are not expressed in everyday activity. This hypothesis can be better understood if we accept that personality is structured in layers and levels, depth psychology. Projective perception testing becomes a very much relevant becomes very much relevant in the context of Sandi's impulse theory. Right. So this uh, this bit seems not especially convincing. Um, the uh, the Sandi test. Yeah. So Angus has posted a link in the chat. So the idea, if I understand correctly, is you get the subject to look at these photos of criminals um, and say, you know, I like this face or I don't like this face um, or you know, I, I find this face. Um, uh, appealing or or uh, repulsive or whatever, um, and then based on the category of crimes that the, the people have committed, um, uh, like you take all the faces that the person finds appealing, and uh, based on the categories of crimes that those people have committed, if there's some sort of pattern, like all the people that you select are um, have you know strangled their victims, then y you um, 
conclude that the subject has like a tendency towards strangling or something like that, um, which seems, uh, yeah, not very plausible. Um, um, we we saw in uh, volume one of individuation, yeah, in individuation, he uh, also mentioned Sandi in terms of uh, a personality test, I believe, um, which again didn't look very um, uh, convincing. Um, but um, yeah, so he he does mention here that this stuff is conjectural, but he seems to um, treat it as um, uh, at least more worthy of. Um, discussion then maybe i would uh i would uh, take it to be but um he he does seem to have some interest in sunday's work even if it doesn't seem especially uh rigorous or um even sort of basically plausible um to me at least in terms of like the structure of the argument here is he like is he saying that um the sandy test may detect these uh inclinations in people that would I, I don't know predispose them from jumping from the progressive determination like path to the immediate instinctual response um yeah i think that is more or less the idea um yeah so the the idea is that sunday test would detect this predisposition to a certain category of actions and uh to the extent that um, that you as a subject are predisposed to a certain type of action, then um, when you're in a, a situation where the um, sort of image that corresponds to that action um, um, is is present, then you would be more likely to sort of uh, pass directly to that action than to follow through the whole sort of um, um, process of differentiating the image to uh, find the appropriate action. And yeah, this bit about uh, victimology, um, again, not super convincing. Um, this idea that uh, certain people have a, a sort of predisposition to being victims of a certain type of crime um, uh, seems very close, if not um, uh, uh, Sort of identical to the idea uh, that you know victims are uh, uh, in part at least to blame for being victimized, um, um, and uh, yeah. So we, I think, most of us would reject that idea. Um, um, I mean, Simon doesn't sort of entirely commit himself to this. He does say this is sort of conjectural, but he does seem sympathetic to the idea. Um, um, but um, yeah, so, yeah, a rare miss for Simondon. I would say, yeah, this is definitely a, a miss on, on his part. What I found interesting about that bit is it, it's that it doesn't, um, it doesn't, um, he, he doesn't bring up um, transference in the psychoanalytic context here at all. And like this is partly understandable because there it, it um, it moves away from like like it being basically crafted onto perceptual patterns, but then right like it it, it depends on on a repetition of past trauma, uh, but um, it ends up being a similar topic that is analyzed in that in that category. And I think like 
the the way he introduces vectormology here as 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 based on this kind of signal response schema thing ends up being worse than than transference and psychoanalysis and there's a god i'm bad at names i don't remember any of this there's like an island where none of the predators of rabbits live and the rabbits that live on that island have nothing resembling like a prey drive or the common sort of fearful behavior of rabbits they'll just like hop themselves right up to people or other animals but if you released a bunch of things that prey on rabbits onto that island i guarantee you they would still fucking hunt those rabbits even though they don't display any of the terror the common characteristics of you know a prey animal yeah i think that's a good um um a good point yeah so the this idea that there's like a sort of um prey response um um that you know the predator and prey are sort of connected to each other through this prey behavior or something like that um is probably uh, uh oversimplification um yeah like if you released a bunch of wolves on this island they would uh they would presumably start hunting these rabbits even if the rabbit's behavior is completely different than like uh rabbits in an environment where wolves are present um where where the the rabbits would have like a a fear response to the presence of wolves um so yeah i think um yeah i feel like simon don is maybe trying to is sort of forcing things a little bit to try to fit into his schema of um like the image and behavioral response um where um yeah it's it's probably not quite as straightforward as the way that he's setting it out here okay uh so let's go on to the next bit in um section b uh if someone could read um yeah about a page um into section b um got a volunteer yeah i can like you just be in probably to like the bottom of page 75 yeah that sounds good all right the role of interperceptual image and information gathering when perceptions of the instinctual type do not arise, for instance, when reception of information takes place in a territory in which the object is identified and the domains of appearance of each category of data are already classified and ordered, the subject's activity is primarily differential in the sense that the useful signal is an index of difference between what is already known about the object, quiddity, form, dimensions, colors, and what is actually new with regard to that knowledge. In this case, information is no longer relative to the class or identity of the object, which represents both the end term of information gathering, according to classes, and the shift to differential processing, which may be called a secondary and properly psychical level. The interperceptual image plays, still plays the role of a model, a pattern of the greatest generality to which the set of incident signals may be connected. But in a perception of the secondary type, the difference between sensor sensorial data and the image is interpreted as a state of the object. The image is the system of the composability of states. Incident information acts as an element of decision in that composability. Finally, as the object may evolve during the perception itself, local activity allows for a selection of information relative to this current variation. This function may be called derivation. We must study successively the identification of the object, differential information gathering, and finally derivation. These three activities are progressively finer and prolong information gathering of the primary regime. 1. The role of intraperceptual image and object identification. 
perceptual constancy and adoption, adaptation, sorry, and adaptation. Constancy is the name of a general effect of perception, which ensures that objects are grasped as sheaves of absolute properties, despite their variable and changing relations with the subject during their movements, and despite the changes of milieu, lighting, proximity of other objects, angle of view. The constancy principle may be decomposed in several peculiar aspects, for into, for instance, the constancy of forms. A circular object continues to be perceived as circular, even if the circle's plane is not perpendicular to the visual angle. Form constancy has limits, however. When the circle's plane is almost parallel to the visual angle, constancy may fail. There is a constancy of colors, of sizes, of hues of gray, etc. In each category, constancy has limits. For instance, color constancy is maintained in spite of changes in the chromatic composition of lighting, so long as there is a continuous spectrum of visible radiations even when the color temperature of the sources varies within broad limits, from that of the sun, around 6,500 degrees K, to, the flame, to that of the flame of a candle. Conversely, colors are altered if the structure of the radiation spectrum becomes discontinuous, as is the case with electroluminescent sources of mercury vapor. More generally, to study perceptual constancy, we call upon the reduced perception, that is, a situation of the object in which the dimensional or qualitative field is limited. For instance, perception through a field of glass that cuts off a small section with no surroundings allows the grasping of an object and reduced perception. Relative to constancy, perceptual activity is comparable to an implicit quick calculation of the dimensional or chromatic scale of a known object, thus of the situation in a continuum. The information is gathered compared to that situation pattern on a continuum. It is in relation to this predetermined mask, anticipated in real time, that incident signals are received and interpreted as providing the knowledge of a person, tall or short, as a function of distance and surrounding objects. If conditions spontaneously impose reduced perception, for instance, a person appearing at the top of a cliff without objects of a known dimension in close proximity, size perception remains uncertain. We cannot tell if it is an adult or a child without the intrinsic size ratio of head to body. The image here is linked. The image here is like a virtual object whose appearance in this or that a place is anticipated from the surroundings and from the continuum of size, color, and form. When the object appears, it is in relation to these images that it is grasped. Reception is then already, in this case, differential and comparative. In the case of a single object in motion, the, Im the imaginary anticipation of its dimensional and aspectual change allows the grasping of the object as a constant if perceptual data agree with these anticipations. Right. So um, this is basically just a, an introduction to this concept of perceptual constancy. Um, and so he mentioned that there is uh, a variety of different forms of perceptual constancy. Uh, so he, he's thinking primarily here of visual perception, but he talks about um, color constancy, shape constancy. Um, there, there are other forms of constancy as well. So uh, an easy example of this is... Um, if you take a, a sheet of paper, you know, just a white piece of paper, and you look at it uh, during the day when you have sunlight coming in through the window, um, it reflects a certain um, spectrum of light. You can, you know, analyze what spectrum of light it, it reflects. Uh, and then if you have the same sheet of paper, uh, you look at it at night when you're using electric light, um, and you look at the, the um, spectrum of light that it reflects, it's a quite different spectrum. Um, uh, the the actual um, amount of light or the the spectrum of light um, frequency that is reflected uh, off the paper with electric light is very different from that uh, reflected up with uh, um, sunlight. 
but at the same time, when you look at the paper, it still looks white. Um, you, you see the white piece of paper, whether it's under sunlight or under electric light. Uh, and you can sort of see the, the difference um, often like towards the end of the day uh, when the sun is setting uh, and you first turn on the electric light, it looks yellow. Um, everything has a sort of yellow tinge. And then as the sunlight disappears and as you um, get adjusted to the electric light, then everything looks normal again. And you see things like uh, with their correct colors. Um, and another sort of way of identifying this is um, there were experiments, uh, I think, in the 30s, um, 1930s that they did, um, where if you take, um, again, a, a white sheet of paper and you illuminate it with like red lighting or something very um, uh, different than, you know, regular sunlight, um, uh, and then you, you look at it through a very small hole, um, like a, I don't know, a peephole in the wall, uh, then the sheet looks red. Um, but then if you look at it in when the whole setting, the whole environment is illuminated with this red light, then you can identify it as a, a white piece of paper under red light. Um, so when you, when you just see the one sort of small segment of the paper under the red light, it looks red. But then when you see the whole environment illuminated by this red light, that you can identify the paper as white. Um, so this this is an instance of color constancy. So you you identify that the paper is white, even though the light that is reflected off the paper is very different, depending on what the general uh, illumination of the environment is. Um, and and he mentions also shape constancy. So you see the like a, a dinner plate has a, a circular shape, even if you look at it from an angle, you still can tell that it's a circle and not a weird ellipse or something. Um, uh, even though the actual shape that's drawn on your retina or projected onto your retina might be an ellipse, um, you can still identify that this ellipse corresponds to a circular shape. Uh, and and uh, so this is something that was, I think, studied for the first time in like the early 20th century. Um, and um, it presents difficulties for a, a sort of atomic theory of perception. So the idea that it, perception would would be a sort of bottom-up process where you would have these sort of point sensations, like a, a sensation of red and then a sensation of green, and uh, they would be sort of next to each other and then have some sort of um, associative process that would link them to each other. Uh, so uh, this kind of account of perception um, has a hard time explaining how we, for example, perceive the the sheet of paper as white, even though it's reflecting red light to us. Um, it uh, because it seems like the the sort of easiest way of um, explaining or describing the situation is that the general red illumination, the the sort of recognition that there's red lighting, uh, affects our uh, uh, perception of the part of the situation, namely the white piece of paper. Um, so it seems like there's a sort of top-down process at work in our perception, our, our uh, color constancy of our perception. Um, so what all this has to do with um, Simon Don's account of the image is, um, again, um, well, he's going to um, get into what exactly the, <laughs> what role the image has to play in uh, gathering information about the environment. Um, and so this color constancy or shape constancy, all these different perceptual constancy effects, um, they allow us to extract information about objects uh, as opposed to um, just about the uh, general illumination of the environment or something like that. So we can 
identify um, the color of this object is the same or different. Um, even if the lighting changes, we can still make that ident identification so we can uh, get information about the object and say this fruit is ripe or, or not ripe. Um, even if we see it in different uh, forms of lighting. Uh, and so uh, this is sort of the, um, the role of color constancy in relation to information gathering about the environment. It seems like uh, other people are not as interested in color constancy as I am. Um, that's okay. Um, so we can go on to um, the next bit uh, from the bottom of 75 uh, to the bottom of 76, if uh, I can get a volunteer to read. I, I can do it. Constancy, which implies an anticipation activity and the production of images, contains a reference to experience and is not universal. There are universes, uh, universes of constancy for a determinate object, that is, types of surroundings allowing for dimensional anticipation and comparative activity. Between two universes of this kind, there can be a discontinuity in magnitude, in magnitude producing an impression of non-constancy when the object is outside its usual surroundings larger or smaller size color changes. Uh, the universe of roofs is not that of living interiors. A pottery chimney tube decoratively placed on stairs seems enormous and much taller than those belonging to rows on top of Persian roofs. Of Persian roofs. The reason is that there is no image of pottery chimney tubes within interiors. A phone line insulator placed on a table seems much larger than when it's on the top of a pole, and a section of rail used as an anvil in a workshop seems larger than actual rails on the ground. Conversely, household, it, ho household items placed outdoors seem smaller. During the war, the inside of uh, aviscerated houses was visible from outside, and pieces of furniture or wallpaper seemed different than what we see when entering a flat, and quite dirty in the sunlight. The perceptual function of constancy involves the deployment of an activity of short-term anticipation akin to that of servo mechanisms and motion and motion predictors, ensuring the automatic trackings, uh, tracking of objects. This function includes, includes postulates relative to a determinate type of object that may be modified by training. Hence, for almost all mobile objects for detect, uh, first detected by sound, Visual scanning is directed to the point of space from where the object appears to be producing the sound. The sonic object and the, vi and the visual object are, are presumed to coincide spatially. Yet with first planes, this short-term anticipation is deceived. Visually, the plane is ahead of where the sound comes from, uh, since the sound arriving now is that which, which it emitted one or two seconds ago. After a few attempts, one's anticipation is re-adapted. Upon hearing a jet flying overhead, one looks for it far farther ahead. The intraperceptual image of the jet takes into account the lag between sound and visual identification. Constancy is the usual uh, in the usual sense of the term is a particular case of short-term anticipation activity that allows for the identification of the object and the permanent reception of signals which allow for its tracking. The image thus presupposes a code of transformation of the object, a formula of potentially allowing the prediction of the transformation of received signals on the basis of surroundings and the ongoing action. Right, so here he's talking specifically about um, motion constancy. Um, so, uh, so the sort of 
basic form of this is, is just the fact that you um if you there's like i don't know a, a a ball flying by when you're playing a sport um the actual image projected onto your retina is constantly changing um it, it like you have uh at time zero you have um uh, a sort of oval image projected onto one portion of your retina and at time one you have um another oval image projected onto a different part of your retina um and again in a sort of bottom-up account of perception it would be hard to explain like you have to invoke some sort of complicated process by which the um the organism is capable of taking one uh oval image on one portion of the retina and uh, another oval image on a different portion of the retina and sort of connecting them to each other um and saying these are uh sort of images of the same object uh but um a more i guess top-down approach would be just to say that we're capable of identifying the constancy of the object so the shape and color and so on of the object um as it moves across uh the visual field so you can see the ball moving you don't see like ball at position one ball at position two and then say um you know these are the same ball you instead see one ball but moving across the visual field um so you you identify it um as a single object that is moving as opposed to seeing different images and then identifying them uh and uh so this is sort of a, a general um description of our capacity to to uh identify moving objects um in in space and then he talks about the specific example of um um looking of looking at uh, of connecting um auditory and visual um uh anticipations of of uh location so you hear a noise you're i don't know you're out in a field or whatever you hear a noise uh you immediately look in the direction that the the noise seems to be coming from and then you see i don't know someone hammering a uh a, 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 a spike into the ground or whatever um you see Okay, that's the source of the noise that I heard, um, and and we do this like instantaneously without even thinking about it. Um, but we we um, are are capable of identifying the uh, auditory signal and the visual signal and saying they belong to the same object or the same source. Uh, but then a more complicated case comes up when he, so he talks about these uh, jet planes where because they're moving so fast. Um, and because they're so far away from us up in the sky, we um, we're hearing the sound not of where the plane is now, but where it was one or two seconds ago. Um, whereas the visual image is traveling at the speed of light, which is effectively instantaneous for us um, in terms of um, uh, you know the actual time that is uh, perceivable. Um, so we we see the plane where it is now, but we hear it where it was one or two seconds ago. Um, so if you try to orient your vision based on the sound, you know, where the plane seems to be coming from, you'll be looking instead behind where the plane is. Uh, but then he mentions, so the whole point of this story or this uh, sort of um, anecdote is that um, you, you're able to train your perception. So if you are, for whatever reason, if you have to uh, find planes, so if you're an anti-aircraft gunner, I think it's a type of example that he's thinking of, um, you very quickly um, learn to look not where the sound seems to be coming from, but ahead of where it seems to be coming from. 
and uh, and then are, are capable of finding the plane visually, um, whereas before you would uh, look in the wrong place. Uh, so these types of connections, these types of constancy are um, uh, trainable and uh, malleable with perception. So you can learn to um, perceive different types of constancy that you were not capable of perceiving before. So, so this isn't directly uh, related, just like generally to this whole chapter, I guess. Um, so, so what I'm noticing is that while the first chapter was was um, really really concerned with the image before for experience, right, and and the next chapter is explicitly about the a, a posteriori image. Um, here in the in the chapter that deals kind of with the image during the account encounter or, or like in perception, right? Um, we we kind of always deal with um, with both the a priori and the a posteriori and of the image. There is an element in in which implicitly there is memory present in in, in what what what. He he talks about you know, or memory or region maybe in, in like the immediate uh, immediate um, perception um, but he does not be um, uh, discussed in those terms which stands out to me I guess yeah that's interesting um, I think um, <clears throat> maybe we could think of a few different distinctions of uh, types of memory or what we might want to distinguish from memory proper. Um, so there's um, this learning process that he identifies. So you're capable of learning to see the where the plane is as opposed to looking behind the plane. Um, so that's one, that's something like memory, but not exactly memory, um, or maybe it's one kind of memory. Um, so learning, you have to be able to learn from experience. Um, but then there's also, um, like uh, the examples that he gives, like the the glass insulators on the uh, electrical pole um, that suddenly look much bigger when they're on the ground. Um, um, so you there's there's something maybe it's also a kind of learning, but you um, um, you have some sort of uh, recognition of what the appropriate setting or the normal setting for this object is, uh, and then when it's outside of that normal setting, it uh, it no longer looks the same size or it its size seems incongruous or something like that um, um so you you're clearly you have to learn i mean there's no sort of um innate concept of what an electrical insulator looks like of course so we, you have to learn um you know what an electrical insulator looks like and what sort of setting it appears in and then on the basis of that learning you can um sort of perceive the, the same object in a different setting and uh, and then the size constancy factor is sort of uh, miscalibrated. Um, so I think maybe those are different kinds of memory or different kinds of learning uh, processes that are at work in relation to this uh, uh, size constancy or perceptual constancy effect. And then maybe a third, I'm just thinking now, um, a third kind of constancy, uh, sorry, a third kind of uh, memory effect is um, uh, retention in uh, Husserl's sense um, is involved in uh, motion perception. Um, so um, when you perceive the ball moving through your visual field, you have to, in some way, um, retain the fact that it was previously at a certain position. Um, and then now it's at a different position. You have to sort of 
be able to grasp the fact that the ball has changed position um, to be able to perceive it as moving. Uh, so um, <laughs> whether we want to call that exactly memory or distinguish it from memory, um, um, anyway, it, it does have some relation to um, a, a sort of perceptual relationship with time and and the past in particular um, that is uh, interesting to think about in connection with um, uh, yeah what relation exactly that has to the the learning function that I mentioned before um, and whether we want to call that memory or not I think is an interesting question okay uh, so let's go on to the next page if uh, someone else could read yeah just a, about a page or so from the top of 77 I can read <clears throat> Subsection 2, the image and differential perception. When sensorial data are received in a stable and normalized manner through the process of constancy, the schema of an object constituting its image as a system of intrinsic compossibilities allows the perception of the present state as a figure against the ground of intrinsic compossibilities. Hence, Somebody we know, identified in spite of distance, movement, surroundings, lighting, etc., appears secondarily as tired, joyful, or tense. Awareness of the current state calls for a rich and precise perceptual image. What we designate as quote-unquote intuition or quote-unquote foreboding, like that of a mother who knows before the doctor that her child is sick, that quote, something is the matter, unquote may be attributed to the richness of the image of compossible states of the child that only the mother possesses. All the doctor can do is compare the child to other children of the same age. The inductively derived image of the experience of same-age children, which is rather a concept, cannot be as well adapted to differential perception as that coming from the various states of the child, organized as a system of quote-unquote masks, of snapshots, cliche, to which the child's present way of being is compared. People who have long cared for a patient perceive in subtle ways the moment when the patient's state improves, or to the contrary, <clears throat> deteriorates. They have formed an inner schema, helping them perceive the present state in comparison to the particular model of the patient. This dimension of the individual as a system of compossibility of a certain number of linked states is illustrated and highlighted by the method of clinical observation, whose essence lies in developing in the observer a concrete representation of the subject that is sufficiently fine-grained to serve as a basis for the perception of the present state and the signification it has for the subject. This concrete representation is an image. The differential perception of the states of an object does not concern human beings alone. It also appears in techniques and more generally in the intuition of a knower sufficiently familiar with an organized reality to know concretely the compossibility of all its states. This perception at times overflows into the present state, like the mother's intuition that her child is becoming sick. The mountaineer can better perceive the state that precedes a storm or snowfall. Even the presentiment of an avalanche may precede the seemingly random and unpredictable event. This kind of perception of a state requires a special knowledge of all the details of a place. The place needs to become a territory rather than a mere field of activity. This is why animals living in a definite territory are often the first to perceive an irreversible change or an alarming state before the eruption of Mount Pelé in Guadalupe, Guadalupe, 
snakes were seen as were seen leaving the epicenter of the cataclysm on Mars, drowning in the sea. The reactions of birds or insects are often used to forecast weather by people who have long observed them. Such reactions are linked to the perceived state of the atmosphere, humidity, and light. In the case of dis- differential perception, the image used as the ground for perception is comparable to that which shepherd has of its flock. Without counting them, he sees that one or two animals are missing. He could not possibly count his sheep through the image, however. The image only plays its role in the perception. And it is the misalignment between the image and the data of perception that appears with clarity. There is no independent representation of the image as a numerable and manipulable reality. For instance, one case often cited is that of the image of the columns of the Pantheon. A mental image would not allow the columns to be counted, yet it would render sensible an alteration in the number of columns where they changed overnight. A great number of mental images, particularly those of clairvoyance, present this aspect of a mask that precludes details or manipulation, and which is as such non-describable. Outside the presence of the perceived object, these images remain schemas, tendencies providing the subject with a definite impression, yet they cannot replace the object. In reality, they are a mode of perceiving the object, a short-term anticipation of its possible states, allowing the subject, after identification of the object, to have a perception of its state. So, if I'm understanding this correctly, differential perception happens after the establishment of image constancy and involves the creation of a kind of ground. I can't remember if he says this a little bit later. Um, the ground for the figure of the object, um, so that through habituation, the um, knowledge of the compossibilities of the object allows for present perceptions of the object to be um, compared against those compossibilities, which is what allows these uh, sort of expert uh, kinds of discernment of changes within w- w- changes with respect to a given object or a given uh, environment. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so yeah, it's only because we have this capacity for perceptual constancy that we can actually um, determine when an object has changed in some important way. So if, for example, you didn't have uh, color constancy, then every time you know the, the a cloud passed over the sun, um, you would like see everything suddenly changing in your environment, and and you would not be able to determine. Um, to, to distinguish the sun going behind a cloud from some important uh, real change in the objects uh, in your environment um, that would you know be important for your uh, uh, behavioral response to that environment. So the the constancy sort of filters out the um, accessory changes. So the changes that have to do with um, you know, changes of lighting or changes of perceptual angle or whatever. Um, uh, it filters out those kinds of changes and it allows us to identify um, the real changes in the object, in the properties of the object that um, have a, an impact on how we should respond to that object. And um, this kind of differential response, um, so as you mentioned, uh, it, it has this figure ground structure. So you, um, 
through <laughs> through long acquaintance with this object, you um, get used to or habituated to the way that the object normally behaves or what it normally looks like or how it normally sounds and so on. Um, you, um, you form this sort of background understanding of what that object is normally like um, or what that situation is normally like. And then on the basis of that background, when something does change that doesn't um, that isn't filtered out by that uh, perceptual constancy, then you suddenly see this uh, this change sort of stands out against that background. Um, so the child, um, you know, is suddenly behaving in a strange way, and the mother immediately re realizes, you know, the child is sick, even if the ch maybe the child doesn't even realize that things are not um, working as usual. And uh, a doctor or someone who doesn't really know this child wouldn't notice anything, but the mother um, perceives the the change in the child's behavior, um, and you know through long familiarity knows that this sort of is a sign of uh, uh, developing sickness. Um, and uh, I think the the example that he gives of the shepherd is a good one um, because um, uh, like we know in in sort of uh, a laboratory setting, um, you can only perceive, uh, like for sets of dots, you can only perceive the number of dots um, in a sort of immediate perception without counting up to about three or four. Um, so if you see two dots, you can distinguish that from three dots um, just, you know, without without sort of stopping to count them. You just immediately see, okay, this set of, of dots is, has three dots in it. Um, but the flock of sheep, of course, will have many more than than three or four sheep. Um, but the the shepherd is still able to, you know, look at the the flock and say, you know, this flock is missing one or two sheep, or or you know, something doesn't look right. Um, even without being able to sort of count exactly how many sheep are missing, they can see they can just see that the flock doesn't look right. Um, and so this, of course only applies to the specific flock of the shepherd. The shepherd can't just sort of um, look at any group of sheep and, and, you know, determine how many there are. It's only his sheep, his flock of sheep, he can determine um, that, you know, things don't look right or some, something is missing from this picture. Um, and uh, another example of this kind of uh, expert perception or, or perception through habituation um, that Simon Nolan doesn't talk about here is... Um, chess experts um, are, are able to recognize um, chess situations, uh, you know, just by looking very briefly at a board. So there are these, um, you know, many sort of chess experts will um, do these performances where they play like 50 or 100 opponents at the same time. Um, so they're like basically just looking at the board for a second and um, and then uh, making a move and then moving on to the next one and so on. Um, um, but it's interesting that this sort of perceptual ability of, um, you know, just seeing the, the board and knowing what the situation is um, immediately, this only applies to, <coughs> sorry, this only applies to uh, sort of real life chess situations. If you just take pieces and randomly distribute them all, all over the board, then the chess expert is actually no better than um, uh, a sort of novice chess player at um, sort of recognizing this situation and, and 
saying where the pieces are and so on. So it's only um, a real chess situation where pieces are organized in a, a way that could arise in a chess game that the, the expert chess player can immediately recognize, okay, these pieces are arranged in this way, and so that means that I can make this move or whatever. Um, uh, so again, it, it's like based on this long habituation of having perceived all sorts of chess situations and recognizing you know, what kinds of moves are possible in different situations that the expert is able to perceive the whole board as one uh, sort of uh, object with, that allows for certain behaviors. Yeah, Braxton talks actually at length about specifically this 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 phenomenon with with chess, and and um, basically says that that's that that that's like I can't do the whole shtick he does there, but um, he he basically suggests that it's a good example to show how um, the memory of their work doesn't really work as a spatial representation of the object, but it's more um, that the the chess field is is remembered as as a um, as a field of potential actions and and uh, forces that act on each other. Yeah, I think that's that's uh, that sounds exactly right. <laughs> so the expert doesn't just see you know a shape of this particular um, you know a, a piece with this particular shape. Is located on square X. Um, instead, they see you know a pawn, uh, you know in in this position, or you know a rook in in this other position related to a uh, a knight in this other position, and and so they they see the whole relationship, all the structures of the board in terms of which pieces are threatening which other pieces, and which moves are are possible, and which ones are desirable in that situation. Um, and like if you ask them, like I think. Uh, probably a lot of the time, if you ask them, like, what color are the pieces or, um, like, what sort of material are they made out of or, you know, how big are they or whatever, they might not be able to tell you, even though they recognize exactly the whole um, structure in terms of chess moves of the situation, but they they sort of ignore the um, uh, irrelevant features of, like, what material the pieces are made out of um, when they uh, perceive the situation. Uh, taking. Taking that idea, my question is that uh, I'd like to ask the uh, the subject of the perception, perceiving the objects. Uh, for example, uh, when I was a child, when I uh, remember uh, an alley, and that is totally when I uh, grow up, and then when I go to the the alley again, and then that alley totally different, cause like um, the alley itself uh, uh, must have changed, it, but at the same time. Me myself, I I myself, uh, has grown up. Uh, which I'm talking about is like um the when when you when you say expert, I think that's kind of like a the point of view of God, um and, and in reality, like uh, of course, like in chess, like uh, that the expert can see like uh, the whole whole kind of things what's going on on chess, but the um a lot of people just uh, see some kind of like a. Uh, partial aspect and then by uh as time goes by like if the person if the person had changed himself or self and then the the person can see uh, the other kind of perceive different kind of aspects of the uh the objects yeah i think um so maybe two things here uh yeah so the um the perception of this alley where you as a child you perceive it in a certain way so like for example 
if you're a certain height, of course, you're going to see uh, signs or whatever from one angle. And then as you get older, you see them from a different angle. You might see them from above instead of from below, for example. Um, um, so you, uh, your, your experience of the alley might be completely different when you visit it as an adult than what it was when you visited as a child. Um, but at the same time, you're still capable of recognizing it as the same alley. Um, like, um, there's some sort of constancy. There has to be something that remains constant for you to be able to recognize it as the same alley, even if it's just the location on a map or something like that. But there's something that hasn't changed that you can say that's this is the same alley. Um, but I think um, I think this kind of uh, expert perception, um, I would say it. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a sort of perspective. Uh, like a god's eye view of the situation, like the chess example is maybe misleading in that respect because on a chessboard, of course, you look at it from above and you see the whole board. Um, um, but this kind of expert perception is a very uh, situation-specific perception. So, like, like maybe the example of the mountaineer who sees the uh, who who sort of perceives that an avalanche is about to happen. This is another example that Simon Don gives here. Um, maybe is a better example in this respect because it's a very situated kind of knowledge. So the mountaineer is an expert at, you know, identifying mountain-related situations like an avalanche. But if the, if you ask the mountaineer to, uh, you know, examine a chessboard, they might be no better than anyone else. Um, so it, it's... And then, again, it, the, even in the, the mountain setting, it's this specific mountain that they're familiar with. It's, it's you know, a particular environment that they have experienced many times. If you suddenly throw them into a, a setting on a different mountain, they might not, I mean, they'd be better than, you know, an average person off the street, but um, they, they might not have the same capacity to, um, you know, identify that an avalanche is about to occur or, um, you know, perceive the um, subtle details of the situation in the same way that they can in, um, in their home setting. Um, and this kind of expertise is also like the, the examples that Simon don't gives are are maybe um, more sort of singular, but we all have our own sort of expertise. Like your your neighborhood that you live in, um, you uh, you'll immediately notice if like um, a store has closed or like there's a new store that opened or something like that. You immediately notice that something has changed um, as you walk down the street. Because you've, you've, you've walked down that street a hundred times, you know, like, sort of, you have an image of what the street looks like, even if you couldn't, like, sort of close your eyes and name each store. But as soon as you see something new, you recognize, okay, this is different. This is a, a new store or, or the, the old store closed or whatever. Um, so, yeah, uh, all of us have our own expertise in particular situations that we're um, accustomed to or habituated to. Uh, and then, you know, some people have expertise in these very singular situations like mountaineering or chess. Um, and we sort of recognize them as experts in that domain. But all of us have uh, some kind of expertise in some domain. This distinction between differential perception and uh, conceptual knowledge. Uh, I forget what that was. In the example of the doctor. Uh, yeah, the on page 77. I think this is interesting. Um, it seems like what he's, the difference, I guess, 
Okay, so a concept here is something that is inductively derived. So rather than being the mother's knowledge of their child, which is derived from habituation and obviously always concerns the same child, uh, the doctor abstracts from what is common between all of the children they treat and derives this this concept of the child, which is not always as, I mean, obviously better in some ways. Um, because the doctor has, uh, you know, obviously expert knowledge as well, but is not always as fine-tuned or is never as fine-tuned as the knowledge of the primary caretaker. Um, and so that seems to be the difference between conceptual knowledge and differential perception. I think that it's it's interesting. One of the things that it reminds me of is uh, in the third critique, the judgments of judgments of taste are also um, judgments of particular objects. And in the third critique, Kant says that uh, judgments of taste can be improved by sort of habituation to beautiful things. So like exposing yourself to a lot of artwork. And I, I wonder what this connection is between knowledge of the particular or like sub-conceptual knowledge and habituation. Yeah, I think that's a good point that um, we should distinguish between sort of two different kinds of expertise. So the doctor, the doctor is an expert in the sense that they have um, <coughs> a, a wide variety of conceptual knowledge about human physiology and different kinds of medicine, different treatments and so on. Um, they have uh, this conceptual knowledge partly derived from, you know, books and courses and so on, partly from their own experience. But it's always... Um, a general knowledge. It's always about, you know, uh, human beings have this property and, you know, if they get, have this illness, then this medication has this effect and so on. Or it can be more specific, it can be, you know, eight-year-old children um, normally behave like this. And then if they are behaving differently, then maybe they're sick. Um, but uh, it's always about a, a certain uh, a category of, of people uh, or a category of diseases, or a category, it's always a, a group of some kind. Um, whereas the mother's expert knowledge is not a conceptual knowledge, it's not, um, it's not derived from, uh, you know, observing many children and then uh, uh, sort of extracting or abstracting from that observation to say that, you know, eight-year-old children have this kind of behavior. It's, a, um, yeah, a habituation to this specific child and how this child behaves, um, and and so it, it's something that the mother probably would not be able to um, explain to someone else because ex explanation involves concepts. You have to say, um, you know, I observed X, and X is a sign of Y because of this property of uh, eight-year-old children or whatever. Um, but the mother probably would not be able to sort of put into words what exactly it is that she's perceived. She just, you know knows that something is off or knows that something is not right, um, but uh, would not be able to actually explain what exactly um, what exactly it is that leads her to, to think that. Uh, so, yeah, one sort of uh, sign that we can use to demarcate the, these two kinds of uh, expertise is whether it's something that is explainable in words or easily explainable in words. Um, so the doctor's expertise, of course, is something that is, uh, you know, you can, you can write a manual of, um, you know, how to be uh, a doctor, what sort of knowledge the doctor has to have, 
um, they're, you know, there are medical textbooks and so on. Um, but you can't really write a manual for like how to be a mother that can recognize whether your child is sick or not. Um, it's something that you have to actually acquire through the experience with that child. Uh, so yeah, this, um, ability to, uh, explain something in words is, um, is sort of, uh, a criterion we can use to distinguish between these two kinds of expertise. <clears throat> okay, uh, so let's go on to the next bit. Um, so if someone else could read up to the top of 80 uh, or the end of 79. Uh, let me read. Uh, from, from the word intu intuition, right? Yes, exactly. Right. The word intuition is often used when the perception of state entails a large number of data to be held together by the subjects without recourse to any dis discursive operation or exploration. This is what Pascal calls the heart in response to problems whose solutions draw on a large number of very subtle principles. The places where various people stand in a hall, their different social status, the need to greet one without offending another, and without forgetting to greet the most important people first. These are examples of the esprit de, de finesse, the esprit de géométrie, could not resolve these problems in a sufficiently short time since putting into equation such a preferential sequences, which interfere with a complex topology, would be too difficult. And truth has to do with the perception of state. To solve the problem of the esprit de finesse, one must have a rather precise image of the society so that it is seen not as a plurality of discrete persons, but as a veritable organism in such or such a pose, contracted, drawn out, spread out, etc. The operational mode naturally dissolved from, dissolves from this perception of a state. The esprit de finesse inhabits those who already possess an image of the organism they are approaching. The perceptive chair of meeting is attuned to the states of the participants in the way one grasps the successive comportments of a wild animal. An orator also possesses an accurate perception of the state of his audience when he knows it well. Yet the image allowing such a perception to occur is not sufficiently malleable so as to take role of the participants after the meeting. An image by itself is as obscure as a perception lacking the support of, of the image. This role played by the intraperceptual image can account for the enormous capacity of the sensorial perception of inform uh, information. While the faculty of attentive apprehension of the of discrete and new elements is limited to a few binary units per second, what uses vision's ability to quickly gather millions of distinct points precisely to feed this differential perceptual activity that receives outside the data the way coded responses are uh, responses are corrected through a grid. Only errors that is non coincidences between the image applying the uh, non-normative non uh, rule of the grid, the actual instant data responses are transmitted to the true receptor, the subject of a perception. Perception. Continue to the end of the page. 
Yes, exactly. Thanks. If the sensorial data are too poor to calibrate the image, but still sufficient to elicit, then it is the image that structures the message received by the subject. This is the phenomenon of the crystal ball in which reflections evoke images without saturating them. Since reflections are plural and less precise than images, a person seen through the fog of penumbra is like a, a coat, like a ghost at the end of a coat, uh, because sensorial data are very sufficient to evoke images. A photograph out of a focus or painting that is but a sketch may have a greater force of evocation than sharper or more complete works. Could the mysterious character of the Mona Lisa and all the paintings then seem to be gazing at the viewer come from a certain fuzziness mixed in with features that recall mental images? A large number of arts use suggestion, which is essentially a call to images with incomplete perceptual data, less richer than actual images. Oh, I have a question when I read, when I... Uh, when I met the uh, parenthesis, should I say parenthesis and parenthesis, something like that? Uh, no, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, quotes are good to uh, to mention, but I don't think parentheses are necessary. Okay, thank you. Right. Um, yeah, so this, uh, again, so he's, he's building on this um, sort of expert perception or this um, perception after habituation. So he talks about um, uh, Pascal's... Uh, um, idea of um or his his example of uh entering a, a drawing room so this is like elegant parisian society in the 17th century you enter the drawing room and there's people you know sitting in different places and you have to greet them in a specific order you have to make sure you greet the most important person first and then the next most important and so on and if you um if you greet people in the wrong order then you you might offend someone um and of course that would be very bad in this elegant society. Um, and he says, this is like, if you just sort of had to reason your way through this problem, if you had to um, like analyze the angles at which different people are sitting and uh, the, you know, what the hierarchy of importance is and so on, it would be a very difficult problem to solve in that sense. But um, someone who is sort of habituated to this kind of elegant society is able to perform this task without even really thinking about it. Um, because they just, instead of sort of um, seeing individual people and calculating what is the correct order to um, greet them, instead they, they sort of perceive the whole um, situation. They perceive the, the setting of, you know, these people in this orientation as one sort of block. They, they sort of um, see, you know, which part of this block they need to greet first um, just as like an immediate property of the whole block. Uh, and so this is again, another example of this kind of habituation. Um, and, uh, but then another, the other point that he brings up here is um, what exactly, uh, so this, this is connected to um, uh, a question in uh, contemporary philosophy of mind, which has to do with the, the richness of perception. Um, so uh, for example, uh, our visual field is um, is actually very uh, so we only have clear perception of a very small portion of our visual field. There's a a small area of our retina, the fovea, which is uh, has a high density of receptor cells 
uh, and then the rest of the retina has uh, a fairly low density of receptor cells. Um, and so it's only in a, a small angle of perception, I think like 10 or 15 degrees, that you can, um, like for example, identify letters. Um, uh, and then if you, if you have a subject like staring at a dot, and then um, you present letters outside of that small angle, the subject is only able to see that there's like some sort of letter shape or like they might be able to say there's a letter, but I can't identify what letter it is. Um, uh, but our sort of experience of the world is not of like a small tunnel of clear, um, uh, clear sight and then like surrounded by this blur. Um, we experience the world as, you know, having this uh, sort of detailed visual structure. Um, and the question is, is this a sort of illusion? Um, are we, uh, like, is our, our real experience, um, uh, you know, structured the way, that, like, with all this rich detail, the way that it seems to be? Or is it really um, this sort of narrow um, angle of, of rich structure surrounded by this um, much less structured, um, uh, I don't know, uh, shadow region or something like that um and and so simon dome i mean he doesn't um allude to th this exact problem but he he brings up the question of what's the point of having all this visual um uh detail available to us in our in our perception um if our sort of uh explicit awareness is only capable of picking up uh, a very small number of those features so like if you are sort of doing a mental description of your visual experience. If you want to say, you know, now I'm seeing a tree, now I'm seeing a dog, whatever. Um, you could only describe a very small portion of the actual detail of what you uh, are capable of, of seeing visually. Um, you, you, you would say, I'm seeing a tree, but you wouldn't say, I'm seeing a tree with this exact number of branches and this color of leaves and so on. Um, but... Uh, so the question is, like, what's the point of all this other detail that we are not able to actually verbalize or that um, sort of goes beyond what we can explicitly pay attention to? And Simondon's answer is that it feeds into this differential perception process um, that, that he's been discussing. Uh, so um, even if, like, the tree uh, example, I might only be able to say this is a tree or this is a, a pine tree or whatever, a very sort of general um, statement. If this is a tree that I, you know, see every day that I water and take care of, and so on, um, I might be able to perceive that something is wrong with the tree, uh, even without being able to say that, you know, this patch of the tree has a different color or whatever. Even without being able to identify what details lead me to say that the tree is is uh, that something is wrong with the tree. Um, so all the details that you perceive sort of feed into this differential perception, even if you are not capable of becoming aware of those details. Uh, so this is, um, I think, a pretty elegant um, solution to this kind of problem of what's the point of all this other um, uh, structure in our perception that goes beyond what we're explicitly aware of. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, this section, I think, is really interesting. And uh, the point about Pascal. I don't know very much about it, but the I a little while ago read a little bit about like in the uh, whenever Hubert Dreyfus was lecturing on Heidegger, the kind of Heideggerian criticisms of artificial intelligence, um, 
which if I understand it correctly, it seems to be basically that um, it's, it's uh, you know, the experience of walking into a room and immediately sort of grasping the mood of the room and um, understanding what to do from this top-down contextual whole uh, is very different from the sort of piecemeal um, atomic agglomeration of facts about the things in the room. And my understanding is that this criticism, criticism of older iterations of artificial intelligence was that they were trying to sort of uh, model human consciousness on the atomic and bottom-up um, uh, esprit de geometry, I guess, that Pascal is talking about. Yeah, I, uh, I only know Dreyfus's work a little bit. Um, um, and he also like had proposals for what he called Heideggerian AI. So it would be um, like an approach to AI that would um uh you know have have more of this i guess top down structure um and would be related to like not not just a sort of um uh perception of facts about objects but um a sort of integration of those objects in terms of what kinds of behaviors they afforded and um and uh how they fit into a, a sort of referential whole of equipment and so on um um but yeah so uh, earlier AI, like in the 80s, um, often was based on very sort of explicit kinds of procedural, uh, sorry, of, um, uh, of uh, yeah, symbolic knowledge. Uh, so like more like the expertise of the doctor. Um, and that was actually some of the early um, applications of AI was in what they called expert systems, like uh, assistance for doctors, for example, where... Um, the doctor could input, you know, the patient's symptoms are X, Y, and Z. Uh, and then the expert system would say, you know, this matches disease of ABC. Um, uh, so those were some of the early applications of, of AI. Um, but then, so, and, you know, they were able to perform uh, tasks that, uh, like, you know, conceptual expertise tasks, like identifying diseases and so on, um, quite well. Or, or relatively well, um, at least. But um, the kinds of things that they were not able to do were like looking at a scene and identifying what kinds of objects were in it, or um, you know, walking down, you know, controlling a robot to walk down uh, a hallway, for example, without bumping into objects. Uh, these kinds of tasks turned out to be much more complicated than um, the sort of conceptual expertise tasks. And uh, yeah, so I think more. I mean. Uh, more contemporary AI uh, probably fits more into what um, Simon Don was describing here, where um, the AI systems are are not um, sort of built up by like uh, identifying individual objects and then combining them into a visual scene and so on. Um, they they tend to like more often you will have um, perception or or uh, computer vision will be done in such a way that the visual scene is sort of broken down into parts. Um, like it, it, you start from the top down and break it down into parts and then identify what those parts are. Um, and uh, uh, yes, yeah, so to some extent, it, uh, it I think, fits closer to this model of differential perception um, 
than it does to the older model of like um, identifying these atoms and then combining these atoms into bigger structures and so on. So at the end of the day, like the uh, uh, what what I understand from this section is that if you, if I particularly focus on like the part uh, page just a second page seventy nine like a uh, one two three four third or fourth line like uh, the plurality discrete persons as a veritable veritable organism in such a or such a project something like that so that that is the process of socialization what I mean is like uh, people are asked to fit to some kind of image like so society accepts acknowledges something like that and then does it have to do with the the concept of l'esprit de finesse and the l'esprit de moteur something like that yeah so the, so, the oh sorry go ahead oh, so sorry so kind of like not the individual individualized image like perception uh individualized perception uh on the, the each object but like the some kind of like the fixed uh, image society accepts, acknowledges. So we are asked to get that kind of image. Uh, yeah, so the, the esprit de géométrie in this case would be like if you entered the drawing room and then you identified each of the people in it and you said like, you know, person one is sitting at uh, uh, a 10 degree angle from where I'm standing and person two is... is um, sitting at a 15 degree angle and um, and then you sort of um, had an explicit list of like person one is uh, more important than person two and then person three is more important than person five and and like you sort of um, went through this problem of like how to greet each person uh, in the appropriate order um, in like a very explicit sort of mechanical fashion where you would go through this list and like calculate what the proper order is um, to to greet the people um so that would be the esprit de géométrie um but then the esprit de finesse is um um yeah this sort of immediate perception of the drawing room as one whole setting where instead of seeing individual people and sort of calculating what order to greet them you see the whole um sort of situation of all these people as one sort of uh organic whole and then the proper order to greet the people is something that you just sort of immediately perceive. You don't have to like calculate it. You just sort of see like what order, uh, where to start with the greeting and where to go next. You see the whole situation as like one in which you greet this person um, first. And, uh, and so, yeah, the esprit finesse is, is a a sort of um, immediate perception of the appropriate uh, response to the situation as opposed to a sort of calculation of how to, uh, of what properties the objects have, and then using that calculation to derive what the uh, appropriate response would be. I wonder if, um, so in volume one, he distinguished between two different types of transduction, um, one in the physical domain and another that seems to hold for the vital and psychic domains. And the vital, slash psychic transduction the example that i remember best that he gave was the um the range of perceptible color for human vision with yellow green being the center and the transductive aspect i guess would be the perception of other colors relative to the center of intensity 
But I wonder if this differential perception is another kind of this second type of transduction where you have the establishment of a kind of, um, I don't know, average or, or middle of, uh, you know, expected states. And then the real perception is understood analogically with respect to the that middle that is given by um, object constancy. Yeah, I think that's a good suggestion. Um, the only point where I would maybe make a distinction here is that the um, the sort of background condition of the objects so of the what you become habituated to isn't necessarily going to be static. Um, so like the, the case of the child, for example, um, of course, a child's behavior um, will vary from like, uh, you know, in relation to the time of day, the day of the week, um, you know, what sort of other um, uh, stimuli are present in the environment and so on. So all of these things will vary in determinate ways. Um, and the mother learns not just like a, a sort of average of all of those conditions, but like the, uh, I guess, dynamics of, you know, how the child responds to these different kinds of situations um, and how the child's behavior will uh, will vary in relation to these different situations. Um, and so then what the mother perceives is not just like a deviation from an average, um, but um, a deviation from this sort of normal pattern of dynamics uh, of behavior. Um, so yeah, that's probably the only point that I would um, uh, sort of specify differently than uh, than how you set it up. I wonder if the if the object constancy. Well, I don't know. I would need to go back and look at it again. But maybe the object. I mean, if color perception is transductive in that sense for Simon Don as well, then this would just be like another layer of this kind of uh, that kind of transduction. The first layer happening at the level of object constancy, I guess. Yeah, I think that, um, yeah, I think we can see this kind of perception as um, built in layers um, because, like, for one thing, uh, color constancy is not static either um, in the sense that um, you can sort of uh, train yourself to perceive the color of light as opposed to the color of objects. And this is something that um, the Impressionist painters, for example, um, they they would use um i forget the name of the instrument but they would use this this sort of instrument that allows you to um sort of block off a section of uh of of the visual field i guess like you'd look at a scene you know a tree or a, a garden or whatever and you would look at it through this instrument and you would just see the color of the light that is being reflected and, you, and then they would paint the light as opposed to painting the objects um and so that's why you have like scenes of uh um, a street light uh, um, reflecting off the snow and it's like blue and purple and green and all these different colors um, as opposed to, of course, the snow itself is, is just white. Um, um, and uh, But what they're painting is not the, the object seen as an object ha having this color constancy, but instead they're seeing the light, um, the color of the light reflected off the object. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the this um, color constancy phenomenon is something that you can sort of, uh, it's malleable in the sense that you can train yourself to perceive the, the changing colors as opposed to the constant, um, the, you, can, you can train yourself to see the changing color of the light as opposed to the constant color of the object. Um, 
And so these would be like different layers of perception. So you can sort of descend to the layer of um, changing color of light uh, through practice and using these instruments. Uh, uh, but then in our sort of normal everyday perception would be a perception that abstracts from those, those changes of color and uh, perceives the fixed color of the objects. And uh, other forms of perceptual constancy would be in like further layers on top of that kind of uh, color constancy. Uh, okay, so I think we're pretty much at time, um, and we're at a section break, so it's probably a good place to stop. Um, so let's uh, end here and pick up from the top of page 80 next time uh, and see how far we get. Sounds yeah. good. Uh, thanks, everyone, for coming out and for your contributions, and uh, hope to see you next week.